Ecclesiastes 6, and verses 10 through 12. Before we begin, once in a while, I like to take an opportunity and just remind us, why do we do certain things in our service? Sometimes I've done this with our congregational reading of Scripture, or giving, or praying. Well, why do we have time for public teaching and preaching of God's Word? The easy answer would be, well, it's commanded, 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the Word. Why is that, though? We need to hear God's Word because God's Word is truth. This is absolute truth. And we need that truth, don't we? We need to know what is true. We're bombarded with so much that is false. And not only do we have uh, things that are tricky that come at us from outside, but guess what's in our own hearts? We have uh, a tendency to think on our, uh, rely on our own understanding. Think, well, I've got this, God. I can figure this out. By looking and hearing from God's truth, we think, we, we were able to think like the Lord, to love like the Lord wants us to love, uh, to, to obey Him. That's why we have this time, every service, where we're focusing on God's Word. Ecclesiastes 6. Verse 10, whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Title today's message, Changing Gears. Uh, after the bulletins were printed and everything, I thought I should have meant um, maybe put that shifting gears because that's the idea here, okay? Uh, think about shifting gears. I have talked about manual transmissions on vehicles in the past. They are a very rare thing today. I thought still that every semi-truck was a manual transmission. I've learned from uh, our brothers here who drive semi-trucks, that's not the case. I remember going to public school, K through 12, and I get in the bus driver, and I don't know what it is about bus drivers, but they all seem to have really bright lipstick and gaudy makeup, and our bus driver going through those gears, buses are automatic transmissions today. What is this world coming to, you know? I remember learning how to drive a stick shift. You don't just turn it on. I mean, you could in a manual transmission, but guess what's going to happen? Uh, it's going to be not much that's going to happen. So you have three pedals down there, and with your left foot, you push the clutch in. You start it up. Now, back in the day, not only did you have to push the clutch in, but you also had to use your right foot because we didn't have fuel injection, so you had to give a little fuel to the carb, the carburetor, kind of prime it a little bit there. You push the clutch in, and then uh, you move your gear shifter into the gear that you want to go in. If you're in a garage, facing forward, you're going to put it in R, okay? One of my daughters did not do that, and it was an automatic transmission. And the front part of my garage went like that, 
and it shook the house, and that's another story. <laughs> so you finally get going down the road, and you're kind of jerking as you're kind of moving, driving your automatic or your stick shift, and you don't want to stay in first gear. If you're driving with your dad, and you're in first gear, and you're going, I don't know, 20 miles an hour, your dad's going to be, shift, 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 because the RPMs are going to be way up. It's going to sound like it's going to explode. It's not a good situation. So how do you shift? Well, you push the clutch in, your hand on the gear, and then with your foot still on the the clutch depressed okay, or pushed in. Uh, you, you, you take that out of first gear and then you're going to put it into pick. Most likely second. Okay, But if you're going first gear at 20 miles an hour, you can probably skip second and go right into third at that point. Why, why do we do that? Why, why do we shift gears like that? Well, for one thing, it's, it's good for gas mileage. When you are running high RPMs, rotations per minute, that uses more gasoline. You need to bring it back down so you'll use less gasoline. It's also better for the engine. When you have a high winding engine, that is not good for the long-term life of your engine. Then there's the whole, you just want to get to your destination. Don't try going 70 miles an hour and second gear. As if you've got a five-speed, okay? It's not going to happen. And if you can't go 70 miles an hour on the freeway when it's posted 70 miles an hour, I have to make these disclaimers. I know your ways. You're going just second gear. You're not going to go as fast, which means it's going to take longer. Solomon, in this book, he has a destination in view. He wants us to arrive at a specific place. He's trying to show us life in a fallen world to every human being by themselves. Life in a fallen world ultimately makes no sense. You'll never make sense of life in a fallen world as a sinful human being. But if you know Christ, you can wisely enjoy life because you're right with God. That is Solomon's destination. And so there's two basic parts to Ecclesiastes. First gear is chapter 1 through chapter 6. Second gear is chapter 7 to the end. Two-gear transmission. Boy, makes it real easy. But what do you need to do? You need to shift the gears. And chapter 6, verses 10 to 12... That's where we're pushing the clutch in, we're taking it out of first gear, and we're putting in second gear. Think of these three verses. That brief moment when you're taking it out of first gear, you're still moving forward, you got the clutch in, and you're going to move it into second gear. And then you'll carefully let off the clutch. Not pop the clutch, then you're going to make your dad mad again. Verses 10 and 11 summarize what Solomon has said so far. So think of verses 10 and 11. It summarizes the first six chapters. Verse 12. Verse 12, he introduces us to what he's going to address in the rest of Ecclesiastes in the last half. The last half of Ecclesiastes 
it really emphasizes the practical things, the practical side of life. How you make your way through this maze of life. Uh, There's a lot of recommendations, a lot of commands that you need to do. We're reminded throughout the rest, chapter 7 to 12, we don't know God's past. We don't know what God is doing in the present because we're not God. We don't know what God is going to do in the future. This gives, so then, a lot of how-to advice because you're not God. So how do you live? His aim is to exhort us by our life to fear the Lord. Let's look at a couple points in chapter 7 to 12 where he mentioned, he talks about this. Do this and fear the Lord. Look at chapter 7, verse 18. Chapter 7, verse 18. It is good that you grasp this and also not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. Chapter 8, verse 12. Chapter 8, verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. And of course, the one that we all, I think, remember, chapter 12 and verse 13. Chapter 12 and verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Let's go back to chapter 6. And learn from Solomon how to shift the gear. And go from what we've seen, be reminded of what we've seen, look ahead to what we need to learn. Verses 10 and 11 summarize this way. Number one on your sheet, you must submit. You must submit to a sovereign God. We don't like that S word, do we? We bristle at it. That's the sin in us. People don't want to submit to God. I want to do it my way. I know what's best. But Psalm has showed us that we must submit to God. Why? You must submit to a sovereign God, number one, because as God is sovereign, there's nothing new in creation. As God is sovereign, there's nothing new in creation. Look at the first part of verse 10. Whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man. So Solomon has talked about how man struggles to find meaning and purpose in life. And when you try to find meaning and significance in this life, and you're all by yourself, you can think, I'm going to change everything. I'm going to change the world. I'm going to do something that's never been done, that's never been seen. I'm going to make a difference. Well, guess what? He says here, whatever one is, has been named already. Hold your place here, and we'll see how he's already said this. Chapter 1, verse 9. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 9. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And we have this phrase here. Let's say it together. 
There is nothing new under the sun. Go to chapter 3 and verse 15. Chapter 3, verse 15. That which is has already been, and what is to be has already been, and God requires an account of what is past. Go back to chapter 6, verse 10 now. Whatever one is, he has been named already. Naming is an act of authority. It is an act of authority. It is an act of sovereignty. Someone knows something in and out, has control over it. It implies previous existence and knowledge. None of my children in the womb sent me a message saying, this is what my name is and this is what you will name me. They're born and what happens? Trisha and I, we name that child a position of authority, origin. They owe their existence to us. Who has created everything? God has, hasn't he? Does he have authority? He sure does. And so he has named Everything. What Solomon is saying here, in other words, is there is nothing new under the sun. That's what he's saying here. When somebody says, I'm going to do something new, or I've discovered something new, somebody might be thinking that here today and think, I, I, I'm going to get you, Pastor. I, I, I have a gotcha moment of, what about this? where they discovered this? Or what about this, that they've done that? Well, nobody's ever just seen it before. It's always been there, hasn't it? We haven't discovered it, but who has always known it? God has. Two passages to help us with this. First, Psalm 148, verse 8. I almost sang this today. Psalm 148, A. I'm sorry, verse 8. <laughs> Psalm 148, 8 says this, Fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind fulfilling his word. I heard some of you coming in today talk about how you're enjoying the green grass and you don't miss snow. Anybody here miss snow? I knew there'd be a couple of you. Three, yeah. Fire, hail, snow, clouds, stormy wind. What is God saying here? God is saying every bolt of lightning accomplishes and carries out God's explicit command. Every piece of hail accomplishes and carries out God's explicit command. Snow, every snowflake accomplishes and carries out God's explicit command. The clouds, every moisture droplet that makes up that cloud accomplishes God's plan. Every wind that blows, and we can look outside right now through the nice windows and we can see some leaves moving. Those leaves have life. They're moving all, no, they're not moving all by themselves. It's wind that's blowing it. 
Who causes that wind? Our sovereign God. Accomplishes and carries out his explicit command. Someone might say, that's just inanimate objects. God doesn't and can't do that to rational beings with wills of their own. I have a will. And God can't do that with me. I am free, independent, and have a sovereign will just like God does. Well, second passage then to write down. Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. Mentioned this a week or two ago. Here we have Kim Nebuchadnezzar, a godless man, an idolater. And he looked out and all that he made, and he said, look at this great thing that I've done. I've done. Who is like me? And God struck him immediately. Made him go insane, nuts. Eventually, God granted him his rationale back, rationality back. And Nebuchadnezzar said this of God. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. Listen. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nothing is new, not only in inanimate creation, but in humanity itself. What if that wasn't true? Did I say that right? What if God isn't sovereign? What would that say about our God? He's just like us. You have to submit to a sovereign God. There's nothing new. And so number two, because you must submit to a sovereign God, don't waste your time arguing with God. Don't waste your time arguing with God. The second part of verse 10, chapter 6, he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. You might have a bone to pick with God. God, why did I lose my job? Why didn't I get into that school? Why did I lose this money? Why did I lose my spouse? Why did I lose my child? God, you've done something wrong here. What is that doing? It's arguing from your position that God is in error, that he has made a mistake. So what's the difference between God and men? God and man, human beings. What's the difference? Think about two things. Who he is, his being, and what he's like, his character. Who he is, his being, he is infinite. There is no limit to his knowledge, no limit to his power, no limit to his presence. What about us? Do we have limited knowledge? Do we have limited power? Do we have a limited presence? We sure do. There is an infinite distance between us and God, just in our being. What about our character? What's God like there? He is absolutely holy. He is absolutely holy. Completely and entirely absent from sin. There is not a trace of it in him. What about us? 
Sin corrupts us entirely, totally depraved in our mind and heart and will. There is a God, and we are not him. Since there is an infinite moral difference between God and man, what does that mean? What does that mean? He cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Every attempt to speak to God as an equal, much less try to expect an answer from him, it's doomed to failure. Think about, can you think of anybody in the Bible who tried to do this? We've talked about Job, haven't we? In fact, last week we looked at Job at the beginning, where Job said, uh, I was born with nothing, I'm going to leave with nothing, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. Did Job stay that way? (laughs) No, he kind of went back and he started blaming God. He accused God. He expected God to answer. He tried to argue with God. And how did God answer Job's questions? Don't answer. Just think. How did God answer Job's questions? He didn't. He never once told Job why he was suffering. He told Job who he was as God. Are you like me? You're not even greater than the greatest things in this world. Who are you to question me? God's point was, submit and trust me and follow me. Arguing with God, it's a fruitless and foolish exercise. You can do it, but there's no hope of winning that argument. Have you ever had the experience of trying to, you've had a, 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 let's not talk it, let's not call it an argument, let's call it a discussion, where somebody is convinced that their understanding of a certain subject is right, and you know this person doesn't know anything about that. But yet they're continuing to talk about it. That's like when I use a farming illustration. Often I will check with my favorite dairy farmer here. And I'll say, is this true? I remember months ago, I remember the welding illustration I used, okay? I talked to guys here who were welding because that would be terrible to give a welding illustration. And to see the men in our church go, oh my word, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Have you ever had that kind of a conversation with somebody? I mean, they're convinced, they're right, and you know, this guy doesn't know a thing. When we had all six kids at home, my office was in our breezeway of our house, that little place between our house and our garage. Worst place to have a garage, an office, worst place to have. It had a door in every wall, four doors. It was Grand Central Station. It was really hard to try to study. It was also where people would come and knock on the door. Warm weather? What do you think of with warm weather? You might think of cutting the grass and going to the lake and things like that. What I think about is our local false teachers who go to door, door to door telling me about you know their false teaching. And I had one knock on the door and I got up and I talked to these two individuals and I said, well, Jesus Christ is God. Uh, It says it right there in John 1.1. And and then they said, well, the Greek in John 1.1 really doesn't say that. I said, hold your thought a second. 
I went and got my Greek New Testament. And I said, now, let's start working through this. And they looked at me like, we don't know Greek, they told me. We don't know Greek, but we know it doesn't say that. I said, well, let's work through uh, the gram. Let's see how I, I forgot what the, the you have an article, the noun, uh, a conjunction and a sense of conjunction and then another noun and how that uh, article, the, also carries to, isn't this exciting? The Granville Sharp Rule, there it is. You'll learn that in a few months, David. They left. I wasn't trying, I wanted them to trust Christ. It's hard to talk with somebody. It's impossible to talk with somebody who thinks they know what's what. But we're not talking about individuals' levels knowledge, levels of knowledge. We are talking about us and who here? God, who is infinite, who is holy. God is infinitely greater than man. It's useless to argue with what God has done. So another passage you could write down here is Romans 9.20. Romans 9.20. Who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? And so number three, verse 11. The more you try to explain God's ways, the more confusing you'll make it. The more you try to explain God's ways, the more confusing you'll make it. Verse 11. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? In several of our English translations here, we see that word things there. And it translates a Hebrew word that, depending on its context, that Hebrew word can mean matter. It can mean thing. Or it can mean word. That Hebrew word can mean, in our English, word. Or it can mean the word of God. Now, you all know that words have meaning only in their context. You need a context to understand it. Otherwise, you don't know what does that word mean. For example, I looked up this one for our our young kids who are getting done with school. Um, Here's a word, young kids, to write down. You got your pencil and pen ready? This has eight letters in it. Here they are. B, W, L, C, H, G, W, Y, N. And you'll say, Pastor, you wrote that down when you were, you were eating your cereal. Kind of sounds that way. B, W, L, C, H, G, W, Y, N. It's pronounced, as best as we can tell, uh, Bolchegwin. It's a small village in northern Wales. Look up some of those city names in Wales. It's... I mean, just listening to somebody in Welsh speak, it's fascinating. You have no clue what they're talking about. That word, it just looks like letters to us, but it has meaning in its context. Even the word word, used by itself, in a specific context, can have meaning. We're talking to each other. And you say, what do you think about this? And I say, word. You know, I'm an old guy trying to sound cool. It doesn't work, does it? It means, okay, sounds good. I'll get back to you. Or you could say, word up. Okay, we're definitely not in downtown Detroit. We're in Orwell. Don't say that. Word up, I agree. Or hello, or listen to me, or what's up. 
I comprehend what you are saying and verify that your statement is true, my good brother. Word up. Here we have the Hebrew word that can be translated matter, thing, or word. It has its meaning in its context. What was Solomon just talking about at the end of verse 11? Arguing with God. What do you need to use to argue with somebody? Words. And so this is talking about words here. Since there are many words that increase vanity, how is man the better? In other words, successfully arguing a case before God is impossible. And when you try to make sense of something you don't understand, the more you say, the more confusing you're going to make it. More words, more confusion. The more you talk, the further you get from the solution. The more you say, the clearer it is you have no idea what you're talking about. You're digging your ditch deeper. You're in over your heads. In other words, life in a fallen world makes no sense to man. So you must submit to a sovereign God. When you submit to a sovereign God, you recognize there's nothing new. And arguing with him and trying to explain his ways are foolish. When you do submit to a sovereign God, remember that's which gear in our transmission. That's first gear. When you do submit to a sovereign God, there's only one right gear to to switch to, to uh, shift to. That's the second gear, verse 12, which is this. You must obey and trust the Lord. When you do submit to the Lord, your sovereign God, number two, you must obey and trust the Lord. Verse 12. Who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Solomon asked two rhetorical questions here. Hey, you remember that? Rhetorical questions, do you remember that? Maybe not. Are you kidding me? What was that? That was a rhetorical question. I'm not expecting an answer. It's just, are you kidding me? Who knows? Or why bother? These are questions asked, not expecting an answer, but to get you to think. It's making a point, making a statement. Solomon's not looking for an answer here. He's trying to get us to think. So what's the answer to the who here? Who knows what's good for man in life, all of his days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who does know? God does. The second question, who can tell a man what's going to happen in the future? Who's the only one who can do that? God does. The first part, because you trust a sovereign God, you must obey him. We can't fathom his ways. And he demonstrates this in two ways here. He's shifting gears. How we can enjoy wisely, wisely enjoy life if we're right with God. Number one, obey the Lord because only he knows what is best for you now. Only he knows what is best for you now. Because of sin, uh, we have a short-lived life. That's what's meant by that word there, vanity. We have a short-lived life. Uh, vanity, a vain life. 
And it's pictured as quickly leaving. It passes like a shadow. Here's your 25-cent sophomore college word of the day. Ephemerality, and I didn't even say it right. We're ephemeral, okay? It's brief. Just a short time. Fleeting. Passing. Temporary. Think about a shadow. I don't know if I can make one here. It doesn't look like it. How long do shadows last? What kind of substance is there to a shadow? And that's what our lives are compared to. Doesn't that make you feel good? We're just shadows. What's the opposite of a shadow? Ceaseless, dateless, deathless, endless, immortal, permanent, timeless. Do you consult a shadow for wisdom on how to live? No. God does, though. None of us can get to the bottom of what God has done. And so no one can say, this is what God's plan is for you. Only God can do that. In this first part, obeying the Lord because he knows what's best for you, this is kind of the summary of chapters 7 and 8, looking ahead. So the first part of verse 12, this is looking ahead to chapters 7 and 8. Number two, trust the Lord because he knows the future. Trust the Lord because he knows the future. Now, I forgot to put in another word here. So between because and he, you need to add a word there. I bet you can figure it out if you look at the previous point. It's only. Trust the Lord because only he knows the future. We are unable to know the future. This is chapter 9 to the beginning of chapter 11. So the first part of verse 12 looks at chapter 7 and 8, kind of summarizes it, how you need to live now. And the future is addressed in chapter 9, verse 1, to chapter 11, verse 6. We are hope, six. We are hopelessly stuck in the present. Hopelessly. I'm going to illustrate this by asking you what is going to happen 60 minutes from now. So we look at our watches. It's 1236, 60 minutes from now. We're not having fellowship lunch here. What is, is going to happen 60 minutes from now? Can you tell me? You can tell me what you think might happen, but can you say this is what will happen? Cannot do it. It is impossible. Do you think you know what will happen after you die? No. And Solomon has addressed this too, also, before. Go to chapter 3, verse 22. Chapter 3, verse 22. We do not know what's going to happen in the future, or in this case, what will happen after we die. Verse 22, chapter 3. I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? And uh, chapter 7, verse 14, which we'll hit in a few weeks. Chapter 7, verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. 
by yourself, you are unable to find what your future holds. So what's the answer to the rhetorical question, what can, uh, who can tell a man what will happen to him under the sun? Only your eternal Lord God. Only he knows that. And so, because only the Lord truly knows the future, how should you respond? A few points under that. How should you respond? Because only he knows the future. Don't worry about it, number one. Don't worry about the future. How successful is worrying about the future? What does it accomplish? Well, I'll tell you what it accomplishes. Get your stomach in knots. Get you all frazzled, worried, and frightened. That's all it does. A second thing. Not only don't worry about it, but number two, leave it with the Lord. Leave the future with the Lord. Trust the Lord with the future. Trust him. Leave it with him. Remember the hymn, Be Still My Soul? Uses the same tune that we sang, uh, Oh, Give Us Homes, today. Be still, my soul. Thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Trust the Lord. Don't worry. Number three, learn from Scripture what he will do. You can know some things about the future, not from yourself, but because God has said, this is what's going to happen in the future. Why did God tell us that? So that we will be faithful now. So that we will not worry. And so that we will trust him. In your daily devotionals this week, we're going to start in the book of Revelation. Remember why that book was given. To help us to be faithful now. In this sin-cursed world that is all messed up and does not make sense, this is the last little part of your sermon outline today. This is what Solomon is saying in verses 10 to 12. In this sin-cursed world that's all messed up and doesn't make sense, when you truly submit to your sovereign God, when you truly submit to your sovereign God, you will obey and trust him. When you truly submit to your sovereign God, you will obey and trust him. When you have a right understanding, I didn't say a thorough understanding of God's sovereignty, but when you have a right understanding of God's sovereignty, he is God, I'm not. He works all things according to his will. And I respond with praise, obedience, and trust. What will that give you? What's the result? Of a right understanding of God's sovereignty. Boy, how long do we have? It's Mother's Day. So I'm going to give you just a few things. When you have a right understanding of God's sovereignty, that results in a joyful trust. A joyful trust. It's not a grudging trust. Okay, God, I guess I'll just trust you. It is a joyful. It is joyful because whose plan is it? It is a good God's plan. 
joyful trust. Another thing that this provides, it enables you to have calm efforts. Think about those two words. Calm efforts. You're not fretting. You're not worrying. But you are working. You are zealous for the Lord. But you're not all in a tizzy about what's going to happen. I don't know. Your heart is calm. And when you're Heart is calm. Guess what that enable? Guess guess how that affects the quality of your work. Makes it a lot better, doesn't it? Because you're trusting in a sovereign God, you are able to have calm effort. One last thing. It enables faithful obedience. Faithful obedience. If I do this, bad things could happen. People could hate me. Well, that might be the case. But you're trusting home. A sovereign God. And so you will obey him. You will trust him. How are things going in life right now? Are you grinding the gears? Did you shift to the wrong gear? Did you put it in reverse instead of putting it in the second? Now that's a scary thought, isn't it? What do you need to do? You need to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him. You need to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how we, his his creatures, must respond. It's not an option. It's the only way. Submit to him. Trust him. Obey him. And when you do, you can wonderfully enjoy the blessings of this life. Instead of being frustrated and mad and not able to understand how things are going. Last hymn that we will sing today has this verse. Sing, pray, and keep his ways unswerving. In all thy labor faithful be, and trust his word. Though undeserving, thou yet shalt find it true for thee, God's word. God will never forsake thee. God will never forsake in need the soul that trusts in him indeed.